as you're pulling your Bibles out, would you join me as we pray before we open God's Word? Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sometimes there's not much else we can pray that needs to be said. Sometimes it would do us well just to be quiet and to say thank you. And with those two words, remember exactly what all of this is about. Why all of this is taking place. The importance of everything that we say that we do as believers should first and foremost be summed up with those two words. Thank you. If we forget those words, God, nothing else we do matters. We've made it something less than what you had intended it to be. And we've interjected ourselves into something that was meant for you. So God, as we open your word now, may we confess that we are limited in our understanding. That what we have allowed your Holy Spirit to work in us is not the fullness of what you have come to give your son to achieve. May we confess that sometimes our hearts are, are full of other emotions, other feelings that our nature uses to shadow what you are trying to speak into us. God, may we put everything else aside as we open your word now. May your spirit rest on our ears on our hearts that we might listen, that we might hear, that we might receive the words that you gave to the Apostle Paul to speak to the believers. And may your Holy Spirit overshadow my inability to fully communicate what is being said in this passage. God, as we read your word, give us hope, give us peace. And Holy Papa, may you guide us on the path that leads to everlasting life. Amen. So I told you last week that as we finish up chapter 11 and we move into chapter 12, what we're going to see is a shift in Paul's focus from the theology that happened through the work of Jesus Christ and the work on the cross to more of the practical living of faith that is supposed to be What's the word, the hallmark of Christian faith for those that have understood what Jesus has done, for those that have understood what the cross accomplished? Now Paul is going to be talking to the practical implications of that. And I want to share with you something that I found as I was doing some reading this week because I think it says it way better than I could. It says in verses 1 and 2, the word therefore. So in our, in our translation, i tell you what, before we get any further, let's go ahead and read these 21 verses. I think that will set us up better. So chapter 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, or therefore, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all of that he has done for you. Let them be as a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he would find acceptable. For this is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and the customs of the world, but let God transform you in a new person by changing the way that you think. 
And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and is perfect. Because of the privilege and the authority that God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think that you are better than you really are, but instead be honest with your evaluation of yourselves and measure yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part is a special function, so it is with Christ's body that we are many parts of one body, yet we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith that God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, then teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. And if it is giving, then give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take this responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, then do so gladly. Don't just pretend to love others, but instead really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope and be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them, but instead pray that God would bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So there's a lot of good stuff in this chapter, as you can tell. And as I told you, we've got to finish this up by Advent, so I'm going to have to hustle through it. So again, it's another fire hose Sunday. So what this means is that during the week, you're going to have to put in a little bit of homework. Not like algebra teacher homework, but, you know, joy, joyous homework. Read through this stuff because there's so much here and there's no way we can cover it in 30 minutes. But I want to share with you something that I read in, in some of the reading that I came up to because it's very critical to understand what Paul is saying. And I feel like I say that every Sunday. I feel like every time we open the Word of God, I say it is critical for us to understand. Do you see a pattern here? Do you see a pattern with this book? There's some critical things in here that we need in order to be successful. So listen to this. I want to share this with you. The therefore in verse 1, remember, that's my favorite word, therefore. I love therefore. Refers back not simply to the previous argument about God's mercy and bringing salvation to both Jews and Gentiles, but to everything that Paul had been teaching from the very beginning of the book. So now that we have started chapter 12, it's imperative that we go back and we begin at chapter 1 again. But I'm going to let you do that on your own. There's a lot of things in those first 11 chapters that are imperative for us to get the fullness of what Jesus Christ is doing. He says it marks a transition from the theology of God's redemptive acts in Jesus Christ to the ethical expectations that flow from this theological base. Did you hear that? Our theological base determines our ethical actions. We come now to what is called the practical section of Romans. We love practical, don't we? 
Don't nobody in here like doing stuff that's not practical, am I right? You ever had a paper, some paperwork by maybe like, say, the IRS that you had to fill out, and you're like, this is the dumbest thing ever? Yeah, yeah, if you've worked with the IRS, you know all about that. The practical, however, must of necessity rest upon a solid theological foundation. You know what happens when there's not a solid, solid theological foundation? Y'all don't buy this holy water that I'm selling after church for $3 a vial. Get yours today. Make sure you get some. Otherwise, it is little more than advice about how to get along in a religious community. Have you ever thought about your faith summed up in such a way that if we try to be Christians without a solid theological understanding of Scripture, then in reality, all we're trying to do is just get along. That sounds like a good slogan, isn't it? Just get along. Didn't that come out in like the 60s or 70s? That was the big social movement. Let's just get along. Now it's love and unity. We're better together. All those things. But it's saying if there's not a theological base, then it's just people trying desperately to get along. What happens when you try desperately to get along with family at Christmas? <laughs> Somebody getting mad, aren't they? Somebody's getting upset. You see, because our natural tendencies, our natural character is not to get along with other people. Because to get along with other people, what do we have to do? we got to give a little bit. We have to give a little bit of our love sometimes. Y'all remember that song, don't you? Anybody catch that? Okay. I was trying. It's not natural for us to get along with people. It's natural for us to survive. It's natural for us to do better than everybody else because we know that if we're doing better than everybody else, we're going to be okay. But Paul is telling us something completely different here now that we get to the practical theological understandings of what Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross to give us salvation, to give us an eternity in the presence of God. To give us a freedom from sin. Y'all, I heard a guy doing a podcast this week and he said something. He said, you know what's funny? Is he said the church is full of people that hate praying but yet are looking forward to an eternity where they're standing in the presence of the one they're supposed to pray to. A lot of people hate worship at church, but they're looking forward to an eternity where that's all they're going to be doing is worshiping. And I've shared with y'all my biggest fear when I was a little kid is that one day in heaven we were going to be sitting there singing all day long. And the song director is going to be like, all right, turn the page and we're going to sing the next song. I'm going to tell you, that scared me as a kid. What Paul's talking about is that, Jeremy said, me too. <laughs> what Paul's talking about is that there's a practical understanding to what Jesus did that is going to shape our life, that is going to shape our joy, but it has to be based on the right foundations of what is going on through Jesus' redemptive acts. So if God had not done what he did for us, there would be no compelling reason for why we should do now what he says. The reality of it is, is a lot of times that the reason we fail to grow in our faith is because we don't see a lot of reason why God tells us to live as he does. Live sacrificially? That's ridiculous. Not do something that I feel is integral to who I am? Well, that's just stupid. There's no reason in that whatsoever. So the dynamic of God's ethical instruction arises from a logical and necessary relationship to who he is and what he has done on our behalf. That's a good statement, isn't it? That shows that we worship a God and that we are pursuing a God who works in our best interest and in the logic of how we were created. World doesn't tell us that all the time, but that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. So many of the living religions have an ethical code that uplifts and inspires. You could say that, right? 
Pretty much every religion that we can think of in the world uplifts its people and it inspires them. That's why they do things uh, like setting themselves on fire, like blowing themselves up, like going to war, all these things whatsoever. But it says only the Christian faith was rooted in a supernatural act that took place in history. That is the incarnation, the life, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only one that has historical proof for its backgrounds and all of its history. And it has the ultimate moral authority as well as the effective power to transform human life according to divine intervention. That's big words, isn't it? We use divine intervention. So Christian ethics are practical specifically because they do not stand alone, but because they emerge as unavoidable implications of an established theological base. So what Paul is saying is that according to the things that God has done throughout history and the things that happen in Scripture, God has set for us the platform from which we are to work off of, meaning we don't have to figure it all out for ourselves. Meaning that it's not up to us to decipher and delude and to figure it out. He says it's here. We just got to trust it. That's where we get in trouble is we struggle to trust it sometimes. So theology in isolation means that all we do is think, but we don't do, promotes a barren intellectualism. You ever met a smart person that probably would have drowned in a bucket? You know what I'm saying? That's what he's talking about here. You can know everything there is to know about God. You can know everything there is to know about the person of Jesus Christ. But if you don't put it into action, it does you no good. It's like the wise dude sitting on the mushroom that everybody goes to to get wisdom from. He's sitting on a mushroom for one. That's weird. Two, it's raining on the mushroom. Three, he never leaves because he's the wise dude on the mushroom. So his wisdom accomplishes absolutely nothing for himself. He didn't do anything with his wisdom. You would think the wisest guy in the world would not be sitting on a mushroom. He'd be doing a little bit better for himself. Ethics, though, apart from a theological base, is unable to achieve its goals. Did you hear that? So if we try to love somebody apart from an ethical base, based on the truth and the word of God, then we're truly not loving them the way that God tells us to love others. We're giving them something less because it's easier on us. Because we can rest in our ignorance. We can rest in our inactivity. And we can do something just to appease somebody without actually ever sharing the truth. We don't worry about sharing salvation because they're happy. And as long as they're happy, we don't care about their salvation. Because the truth is, is if they're happy, they leave us alone. And that's the way that most of us approach the gospel when it comes to other people. But you see, when Paul was writing this letter, that was not the case. Christianity was a small religion. It was just starting out. It was not accepted. Governments didn't really care for it. Christians were being killed just because they mentioned the fact that they were Christian. So when Paul wrote about a practical understanding and a practical action to faith, he was writing to people that when they acted their faith out, it could potentially cost them their life. That's something that we can't wrap our mind around yet because we don't really have to worry about that. If we wanted to take a milk crate down to Walmart and stand on it and talk about Jesus, we could do so all day. We'd get some high fives. We'd get some Snickers. Most people would buy us a Coke and candy and offer to take us to dinner later. We might have a few theological debates because everybody goes to church around here. 
But in Paul's day, when he was writing this letter, that was not the case. You were taking a huge risk when your best friend from work, and you said, hey, I want to tell you about this Jesus guy that I found out about. It's very possible that people could be showing up at your house later with pitchforks and clubs. So Paul's writing to people that are living in a little bit different circumstances, but he's talking about the same faith. He's talking about the same understanding of what Jesus accomplished, and he's talking about the same eternity and the same goal for what we do. So in view of the many mercies of God, Paul exhorts his readers to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. And this one guy commented, he said that the mercies of God is not an inadequate summary of what is contained in chapters 1 through 9, especially in 9 through 11. Remember, we're God's mercy on the Jewish people as they're still being elect and they're still being the ones that God is going to use to accomplish his purpose. We remember that. He said, so it's not an inadequate summary of all those things, but the proper response is to say, It's not to speculate on the eternal decrees or one's own place in the scheme of salvation, but it is to be obedient. So Paul is telling his reader and he's telling you and I that when we think of the mercies of God, the only correct response that we have is to be obedient to what he is calling us to be. It is to be obedient to what the word of God says we are to be. Not our definition of self, not our autonomy, not even our self-esteem. Remember when Paul wrote from prison that he was actually the happiest that he had ever been? Because all the things that he thought mattered were no longer in play. And he realized the only thing that he had that mattered was his salvation in Jesus Christ. So obedience to God is what truly gives us the things that we seek desperately for, which is peace which is hope, which is joy. So Paul's trying to get the reader to understand that and to hear that. So he says, Therefore, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you, and let them be holy and living sacrifices. Now, we've talked about sacrifices before. Did I ever tell you about my high school quote? I'm sure I've shared that with you before. The difference between a ham and egg breakfast was that the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. Did I ever tell you that before? You think about it. A chicken gives an egg, and so they contribute to breakfast, but the pig is fully committed. You don't get bacon and the pig walking away. It just doesn't happen that way. And so there's a difference in the way that we live our Christian life, and Paul says to let us be as holy and living sacrifices. So remember in the Old Testament, when they would give a sacrifice, they would take an animal, they'd take it to the temple, and they would take the life of that animal to atone for, to appease for their sins and their wrongdoings. But now Paul is saying to let your life, let yourself be a holy and a living sacrifice. What do we know about the word holy? What does it mean? It means set apart. It means In our case, perfect. We're perfect because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul says to live your life wholly and completely set apart for the things of God. That's a big, important, practical application of what Jesus is doing. He said, this is the sacrifice that God will find unacceptable. And this is truly the way to worship him. It's not singing along with the sweet musical renditionings of Matt Carter. It is not singing along with the wonderful hymnological techniques of Charles Wesley. But it is to live our lives in such a way that we are completely set apart. 
in our thoughts, in our purpose, in our actions, in our words. Everything that we do is for the sake of sacrificing and honoring God the way that God said that we are to honor him. Verse 2, that was only verse 1. All of that in verse 1. Verse 2, do not copy the behaviors and the customs of the world. I'm going to be honest with you, that's a hard thing for the church to do right now. In Western culture especially, because we live very comfortably as Christians. Our idea of persecution, our idea of tough times is when somebody disagrees with us. I'm just going to be quite honest with you. We don't know what persecution is. We don't know what hard times are. Just because somebody doesn't agree with us does not mean that Satan has broken down the gates of heaven and we're all doomed. Paul's talking to people that were giving their lives, that were being mugged and beat in the streets, that were having to get rid of everything and leave in the middle of the night because somebody found out that they were ascribing to this new faith, this new idea of salvation. So I want to tell you, if you're sitting here right now, the only struggles that we have nine times out of ten is with ourself, with our pride, with our laziness. We don't know what it is to be persecuted. The trials that we deal with are very, very shallow compared to what Paul was talking about in this book. But he said, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world. Easy times make for easy people. So we have to stay on top of who God is telling us to be, not who society tells us to be, not what popular opinion tells us to be. We have to be on top of what God's word is telling us that we are to be as his people. And he said, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That is my prayer every time I get on I-40. Change my thinking, Lord. This whole chapter is about me on I-40, let's just be honest. <laughs> He says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't think of yourselves better than you really are, but be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. You know, one thing I've learned from the game of golf is that we as human beings are a lot easier on ourselves than we are on our neighbors. Meaning that when I hit a bad shot, I'm like, ah, I wasn't ready, so I hit another one, and I might not count that stroke. But if my buddy, knock, Roy, I'm talking about you, knocks his ball off the tee while he's trying to take a tee shot, what's the first thing everybody always says? That's one. <laughs> and the whole game, we're paying attention to what the other person is shooting, making sure that that score is correct. But we're hoping they didn't see that time, Joey, when our club hit the grass before we connected with the ball. That transfers directly into how our natural self struggles with this new life and this new person that the gospel has called us to be. We give ourselves grace very freely, but yet we tend to hold people accountable to the letter. So Paul says, don't, don't be too gracious with yourself, but instead be honest in your evaluation with yourself. You know what happens with an honest evaluation of self? A betterment of self. If we see something of our character that we don't like and we're honest with ourselves, what do we do? We, we try to change it. 
There's a fitness app now that's like one of the number one downloaded fitness apps called a Better Me. And what it does is it will take your fitness standards and your fitness goals and it will set you out a plan that you can follow for a nominal price of $39.99 a month to help make you a better person based off your goals. And I learned the first month in that some of those workouts are pretty hard. So my evaluation tended to change a little bit to where those workouts became really easy. And you know what didn't happen? Better me didn't happen. After about two weeks, I'm like, this is stupid. I'm done with this. So Paul says, be honest with yourself because when you measure yourself according to the standard that God gives and you're honest with yourself, you're no longer worried about your neighbor and holding them accountable. You're worried about you because you realize that God has a better standard that you want. And so you begin to chase God and, and pursue God in such a way so that you can be better. He says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we belong to each other. I found something really interesting in these next few verses that I want to share with you and I want you to hear them. So believers are extorted... Not extorted, that's not the word. Exhorted, encouraged. They could be extorted. I mean, we can get to that point if we have to. They're exhorted, they're encouraged to make a decisive dedication to become worshipers who step forward and offer, place their offerings on the altar voluntarily. Did you hear that? So what Paul is trying to get the believer to hear is that our response to Jesus Christ it's all voluntary. Preacher sermons can't make you do it. The quality of worship on Sunday morning can't make you do it. The setting that you're in is not going to make you do it. But Paul says that a response to Jesus Christ out of faith is something where we have to make a choice to voluntarily step forward and place our offerings on the altar. Our finances our ability to teach, our understanding of, of God's working in our midst, our time, our efforts, our prayers. All of those things are voluntary things that we do. Holiness of life rarely progresses apart from deliberate acts of the will. You ever prayed before, God, make me holy, and then you go about your day? God, take care of it today. I don't want to have to worry about it. You just do your thing and I'm good with it. It don't work that way. I wish it did. You know, back in the day when you were in geometry class and you didn't understand it, so you'd stick your book under your pillow at night, hoping that it would just soak through. It don't work that way either. I've tried it. So while sanctification is gradual in the sense that it continues throughout our life, each advance of our faith, is a conscious act on the decision of our will. Meaning that our growth in Jesus Christ, our becoming more like the person of Christ, only happens when we let it happen. Only happens when we allow it to happen in our lives. This is the sacrifice that is a living. It speaks of the voluntary nature of our acts. So Paul says, voluntarily and intentionally step forward. Now, real quick, we're going to cover the next... Seven verses and then we're going to be done because we've run out of time and it makes me sad. 
because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each one of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves and measure yourselves by the faith that God has given us. Faith in the word, not faith in our abilities. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. Can we all agree with that? Say amen. All right. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Look to the person to your left. Say, I belong to you. Look to the person to your right. That was an act. I mean, like voluntarily do that. Look to the person to your right and say, I belong to you. That's what he's saying. If you're sitting here this morning and you say, this is about me, this is my church, you're wrong. That's not what Paul says. He says, we belong to each other. Now listen to these gifts here. He says, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out, which is without, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. Not make sure that you are served well, but he says, serve others well. Anybody in here know somebody that's good at serving? Everybody in here should raise your hand. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we're all called to serve. So he says, serve others well. If you are to teach, teach others well. Anybody in here called to teach? Everybody in here should raise their hand and say, I don't really like talking in front of people, but I know what that verse means. If you know what any verse in this Bible means, you better be telling somebody about it. I'm just saying. It does nobody any good. If you know it and you don't share it, you were that old man sitting on a mushroom. Are you living your faith sitting on a mushroom? Just want to share that with you. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging, please. We need encouragement. All of us need encouragement. I'm going to give you your encouragement for the day. Y'all are all beautiful, and I love you to death. And that, wasn't that easy? Didn't it make you feel good? That's all it takes. Just be encouraging. If you are to give, give generously. Anybody got $5 in their pocket? Let's pass the plan. No, I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. If God has given you leadership ability, take this responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others, but really love them. I'm going to stop right there because I wanted you to hear that of all of the gifts that were mentioned, none of them were self-serving. It does you no good to pour over the scriptures if you're not going to tell anybody about it. It does you no good to be the happiest person on this planet if you don't share it with somebody else. It does you no good to notice that somebody's hair is beautiful if you don't tell them their hair is not beautiful. We are called to this community of faith not simply to exist as warts on a frog, as old men sitting on mushrooms, but we are called to exist for the sake of one another. If you are gifted, if you are blessed, the practical thing that Jesus Christ has called you to do with this salvation is to lift somebody else up, is to encourage somebody else, is to teach somebody else the truth of what it means to be redeemed, of what it means to be given new life, of what it means to have faith in an eternity not based on our deserving of it, but of what Jesus Christ did. We cannot be silent and say that we believe in Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We can't be a curmudgeon and say that we believe in Jesus Christ. We can't be critical. 
and say that we believe in Jesus Christ because those three things are not the character of a life that has been redeemed, renewed, and sent out. So church, we have a challenge before us to ask ourselves, are we sitting on a mushroom making all of this about us? Is our theology based on something that is not the word of God or the character of God or the doing of Jesus Christ on the cross? Or are we responding with the new life to where we realize that the things that we have been given and the people that we are called to be are for the sake of the person to our left and our right, the people that we are called to be in fellowship and community with, and then the world that we are called to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even at risk to our health and our well-being. Jesus Christ calls us to go and to do. He never says sit back and be, ever. The only time we're ever to just be is in the presence of God so that we can be better prepared to go and do. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the words of Paul here in this book of Romans. God, we thank you for the journey that you have allowed us to be on, that you have allowed us to follow. God, as we think about what it means to live our faith and we think about what it means to trust in your goodness and the calling that you have placed on us. God, may we rejoice that your Holy Spirit goes with us. God, may you convict us when we are silent. May you convict us when we are quiet. And God, if the character that we offer the world is anything less than the character of Jesus Christ, may you give us unrest. God, may you give us joy in trusting in you and following in you and sharing the name in which we have found life. That is the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in that name that we pray. Amen.